Roger. Yeah, I think he's pulling the wrong one. I'm just, okay, I'm ready to pull it down now. There was still a little bit uh, left in the... Okay, don't hold it quite so tight. Okay. Yeah, what? Hi, welcome to the podcast. This is how it's going to start. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. This is the beginning. This is the intro. This is the start. You are in the executive buffet right now, in the lounge of the executive buffet. You just got off Daddy's big red truck, and you got plopped into the dropper here, courtesy of Jason Pepperhouse, a.k.a. Kevin Tipcorn, a.k.a. Mr. Macon Brown, a.k.a. several other names I can't remember right now. Maybe uh, Chucklebee Hackstraw. He's sort of a new old guy. He's come back. Thank you for listening right now. Please rate and review and subscribe to the podcast. It's very easy to do it, and it helps us out a lot. If you want more of what you're getting right now, you can visit us at Patreon. Not visit. You can visit and stay and lounge and chill and play at patreon.com slash live to tape. That's patreon.com slash live to tape. All words in the English language using the letters that we know from that language. Today, my guest is a very special, super interesting guest. Uh, his name is Mark Nelson. He's a scientist. He's an author. He is a, a master gardener. I think he's beyond master gardener. He's, you know, he's a, he's a of a gardening stature that is not describable. Uh, how, how should I sum up him best? Well, he was one of the original members of Biosphere Two, which was a, a math one of the most intense, cool. Uh, amazing experiments ever taken place on planet Earth, replicating planet Earth <laughs> inside planet Earth, inside a separate thing called Biosphere 2. If you don't know about it, there's a great new documentary available to watch on that. Also, uh, Mark's book that he wrote with other members of the Biosphere 2 is an expanded edition available now, which we talk about on the podcast. It's called Life Under Glass. So that's who is on the podcast today, which is an amazing, amazing uh, guest and super interesting. We talk about all kinds of stuff. It's definitely one where there was so much more to be said, and we'll probably be talking again in the future. But without any more interruption, here it is my conversation with Mark Nelson. You're a guest on my the tape right now. Thanks for being here. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. So, you're right now, you're in New Mexico. I am just south of Santa Fe. Okay. Is, is it pretty hot there? Is it hot as it is in California right now? You think? It's uh, fairly beastly, but our cucumbers and our squash and our, our organic farm enjoys it. How do you manage to keep those, uh, those vegetables happy in that kind of weather? Well, you know, we're, we're doing a whole uh, soil improvement program here. Mm-hmm. And from the beginning, even when we had a jerry rig it before, there was things on the market. We've always used drip irrigation to minimize the amount of water loss and salt mm-hmm. buildup. Like a lot of the Southwest, our, our well water is fairly salty, which makes yeah. it challenging. 
Yeah, we find that even here, I get a lot of calcification on everything. I, it's uh, it's kind of frustrating. How are you able to eliminate? Do you don't you can't eliminate that? Is it something where the drip irrigation makes it? Uh, you do you filter it, or what do you do to it to make it better for the plants? Well, no, we we don't, but we try to minimize our irrigation by building up the soil biology. Mm -hmm. And from the early days of Synergia Ranch, you know, we had a, a really robust uh, program of soil building, compost making, so that, you know, we've basically created uh, organic soils for the trees at Synergia Ranch, the orchard, and now for our vegetable production. What do you, what is the first step in that? Because that's what I'm most interested about is the farming aspect, because I want to talk about the biosphere stuff as well, but I feel like, but where you are right now is you were there before biosphere and, not, and then you're doing this again afterwards. It's kind of, uh, it's all part of the same thing for you, isn't it? The, the um, organic farming. Well, you know, uh, I'm very uh, partial to Synergia Ranch and New Mexico mm -hmm. because before that I had a, you know, to me, of course, you know, every, we sort of undervalue our own background. Right. But here I was, you know, a, a city kid, immigrant uh, child, you know, Ivy League educated person who had no, you know, no comprehension really of the world and how it operated and how to intervene and make a difference. So that all happened here at Sinegar Ranch beginning in 1969. Wow. In that ancient history when I was 22 years old. Do you remember the, the instant or uh, sort of like the, uh, the thing that kind of got you into it, the thing that kind of hooked you? Was there a, was there a particular plant or like an event that, that occurred that made you really interested in that specific genre of science? Well, you know, it's more than science, and we can talk about that. I, I have great respect, and, and occasionally people call me a scientist. I do have a master's and PhD, but, you know... You know, science, science, I think we should demystify it because uh -huh. it, it occasionally becomes like a religion. Oh, the scientists yeah. say, you know, what is science? Science is this very noble and very ancient and modern endeavor to understand how nature works, how the universe operates. That's what science is, you know. So, yeah, anyway, uh, two events. Well, the first one was, you know, what attracted me to Institute of Ecotechnics, Theater of All Possibilities, and these pretty wild ass, you know, to my understanding, because they were types of people that I had really, really encountered before I came out here. Mm -hmm. They told me that, uh, you know, the, the way of life, the Ecotechnic Synergist program was to do three things concurrently. Okay. Work. Okay. Support yourself by starting and learning an enterprise, which I first interpreted as a job. <laughs> you know, and you know, I've had various jobs. You know, <laughs> during my during my college education, before that, etc. We all know what a job is, but an enterprise is something quite different. It's actually taking a endeavor from beginning to end. So, uh, you know, so we're going to work on enterprise because we want to be self-supporting and, you know, basically have the freedom to call our own shots. We're going to work on theater. And I, you know, I came from a Jewish background where, you know, 
which which I think the high side of that part of Jewish culture, you know, wealthy people were not that respected, but people in the arts who contributed to culture were really, really, really respected. But I never imagined that I could be an actor, a thespian, mm -hmm. that I could get on a stage of whatever type. You know, so I, you know, I said, well, hey, why not? Let's give it a shot. And the third part is we're going to work on ecology. And in the case of Synergy Ranch, which was the first eco-tenting project, we had a very modest but kind of overarching goal. You know, this land has been, you know, pretty much degraded, desertified by first, you know, the Spanish, who were the first uh, kind of Europeans in New Mexico, mm -hmm. and then the Anglos, the United States. And it was, it was the most terrible ecology I had ever seen. But what I had seen, I had seen the East Coast of the United States. So our goal at Sinegate Ranch was to create an oasis and to reverse desertification. And why this was magic to my, my ears was that my family doom was I was supposed to become some kind of a professional, preferably <laughs> a medical doctor, and if not that, a lawyer. I don't, I, I, don't, I don't believe my family even knew what an engineer was. Yeah, I and felt a similar thing growing up. <laughs> you can relate to that. Yep. <laughs> yeah, you know, so when I look back at it, it was very symbolic, you know. So, you know, I have a fairly good multiple choice essay writing kind of IQ. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say I'm all that intelligent, but I can, I can jump through academic hurdles. And I remember when I graduated on a full scholarship from Dartmouth College, you know, a prestigious and out of New York City uh, college that attracted me to where I could start to learn who I, I am. I remember very symbolically at my graduation, and I graduated summa cum laude, mm -hmm. Phi Beta Kappa, with a major in philosophy and a minor in pre-med sciences in case I succumbed. Right. I, I remember giving the diploma to my mother, and she was proud as a beam. And I remember thinking, okay, I've kind of done that. Now what does life offer? What, you know, what kind of interesting, innovative, life-affirming, both for me and for the planet and for people around me, endeavor can I, you know, find? And really through just great luck, absolute great luck, serendipity, synchronicity, I ran into uh, members of the Theater of All Possibilities who had been doing theater and talking about ecology in New York. Mm -hmm. So I got an invitation to go out to New Mexico for th a three-day trial. A trial? Yeah, a trial. So are you trying them out or are they trying you out? Both. Okay. Mutual. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I don't know how much of a person of, of uh, you know, common sense you are, Johnny. But, you know, to me, you know, it, everything that I was doing at Sinegar Ranch was like a revelation. It was like, okay, people can grow their own food. Mm -hmm. People can build their own buildings. People can start enterprises. And, and it's still the case in New Mexico. It's a fairly lightly bureaucratic uh, 
endeavor, I think for pretty much 10 bucks or maybe 20 bucks, you can open up a business and get rolling. So, yeah. So, so the first thing that, that changed my life was hearing that instead of becoming a specialist and only doing one thing, yeah. I knew intuitively would just dry me up. I just really feared, and we're talking the 60s when, you know, the counterculture revolution was happening, Vietnam and the protests against the war were happening in the U.S. Right. Uh, intuited that, that becoming a specialist and only living for weekends and holidays would be a lifestyle that would just kill my, my soul. Yeah, okay. I mean, you're so, not alone in that. It's, it's, a, it's definitely, I think, a lot of people find a disillusionment in that lifestyle. I know. I mean, much more, more, much more worse than any four-letter word uh-huh. that we can think about is the three-letter word, a job. <laughs> no, yeah. ser- seriously, you know, it and, is. And William Burroughs, of course, is one of our heroes and became a friend of, of the Institute and Biosphere too. And he, he uh, entitled one of his books, The Job. And he said it was inspired when he saw a school kid, you know, lugging a school bag full of books. He said, you know, what are you doing? So I'm going to my job. I'm going, <laughs> I'm, go- I'm going to school. I'm going to school. Anyway, but the, the, other, the other event that I'd, I'd like to mention, mm-hmm. homage to, you know, the people that are so demonized in our culture, the pagans, the indigenous people, mm-hmm. the people who, you know, still have a sacred relationship with their land and are still, you know, not as crazy, at least as, as most Westerners, including myself that I've met, is uh, there's a very strong culture here in New Mexico. It's a, it's a three cultural area, the very strong Hispanic because of the, the you know, the Spanish uh, conquest and then you know, residue of all of that for three or 400 years. But it's one of the few places, and it may be because New Mexico is such worthless land, (laughs) that the Anglos, the United States government, and the Spanish never moved the Pueblo Indians off of their land. So they're not only indigenous, but they are, you know, quite remarkably connected to their tradition. Now, I remember it was during the first year that I was here in New Mexico, I went to a dance at, at the Santo Domingo Pueblo, mm-hmm. a big corn dance. And, you know, with a little homage to the Catholic patron saint, you know, they had a procession from their church, you know, and set, set up the patron saint in a tabernacle. And then they did a Pueblo dance that probably has been only slightly evolving for at least a thousand years, maybe wow. longer. And what got me about that was that I was, I was really intently trying to ascertain what is it. And we're talking about a thousand people in the plaza of their Pueblo dancing simultaneously. There's two groups. There two Anyway, we, let's not get into all of that. But, but I remember very distinctly, and I grew up in New York, which is, you know, especially for Chinese and, and a melting pot for various Europeans, etc. Wasn't that Latino when I grew up, although the Puerto Ricans were there from the mm-hmm. Caribbean. I remember really, you know, grokking, here's a 60s term, <laughs> really 
really, really picking up that what was just spectacular about, you know, the event that I was privileged to be a spectator at was that these people had a cosmology that I had no clue how it operated. Mm -hmm. And I found that extremely, extremely, in the nth degree, liberating. Because it told me that there are ways of being human that are totally legitimate and fulfilling. And obviously these people have kept their culture going in a really harsh environment for millennia. Yeah. That there are so many ways of being human. That's interesting. Yeah. I've read a little bit about some of those, um, those type of events and it's always the kind of thing where it's just so, I've never seen anything like that, but in, in my mind to imagine it, uh, I, I can't imagine it being anything other than absolutely breathtaking because it, it's something where uh, you've never seen anything like that before. So it's like, uh, so that was a big change for you when you arrived there because you saw this thing and it really just kind of blew, blew your lid. Well, it kind of opened up and, you know, I love that the theater that people had, had started and space, you know, so we, we should mention Spaceship Earth, you know, a new documentary that's, that's out there. You know, it's a very complex story, the, the group of people and what we've done over literally now four and five decades. But it's a wonderful film and I, I think people will find it inspirational. Is it out yet or is it coming out soon? Oh, no, it, it's been out in the okay. U.S. Since, since early May. Okay. Spaceship you know, it, Earth. Yeah, it's on various platforms and I don't need to, you know, support corporate causes by, but, you know, if you look right. for Spaceship Earth, unfortunately, there was a Spaceship Earth film, uh, 2016. Okay. So this is the 2020, uh, Matt Wolf is the director and we gave them access to our archives. So, you know, they had 600 hours of archival material to draw from. This is the ranch that you're talking about. This is has this, this is something about the biosphere, right? The spaceship Earth documentary. Well, but biosphere two is the center of spaceship. Right. But I think what makes it an even more remarkable uh, uh, film mm -hmm. and story to be told is they they trace back. You know, who are the people behind biosphere two? Right. Who are the people? The you know the core group that came up with the design that most of the first crew inside, you know, came from their projects. And if you trace that lineage back, lineage, uh, it goes back to 1967 in San Francisco. Okay. When a few of the, you know, the colleagues that I still work with, John Allen, Kathleen Gray, mm -hmm. Bill Dempster, Marie Harding. Have you seen the film, by the way? I haven't seen the film, no, but I, I just recently watched the trailer that you sent me, and it looks uh, very exciting. I really want to watch it. Yeah, and, and, and we'll talk about, for people who have their interest uh, mm -hmm. buoyed by that, the new book, the, the second edition of Life Under Glass, which really uh, shares the drama, the significance, and, and I think most importantly, the relevance of all of this work, you know, ecotechnics and ecological mm -hmm. work to our current, shall I call it, challenge? Yeah, I think, I think that's a good way to put it, because it's so relevant now. Um, I mean, I've been interested in, I don't know how you scrap, just ecology in general and gardening and stuff like that for a while, but it feels like every year it becomes more and more relevant and more people 
are interested in it becomes because they just feel this there's like almost like it's in the zeitgeist feels like that that this type of thing is just really relevant now especially to so many more people yeah you know we can talk about covid and it's really interesting Mm -hmm. you know the this film spaceship earth uh premiered at sundance in january 2020 this year (laughs) which seems like a world apart because You know, there were actually, there was actually crowded theaters, you know, for Mm -hmm. the premiere and we were, you know, a a number of us came up to, to see the, the, uh, the first showings and this, you know, answer audience questions afterward, but then COVID hit. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the relevance of Biosphere 2, and I've written a few books about it, you know, it, if we had done this project like today or last year, everyone would totally understand you know, what we were doing back in 93, when the word sustainability was only an obscure professorial term in, in universities. Mm -hmm. And even the, even the word biosphere, we had to spell for people because not only was it biosphere too, but the company behind it was called space biospheres ventures. Right. Yeah. People did not. I mean, I remember when I first learned about it, I was really, I was obsessed with it when I was a kid, when I first heard about the biosphere too. And uh, I don't remember thinking about it, anything other than just being this great source of novelty and interesting how cool it was that these people were doing that. But you don't think about it in terms of the way now it's, it's, you look about it back then and it feels like a novelty when really nowadays it would be, you would think of it as almost like a form of necessity to figure out these key components and the integration, the ecosystem integration, because it's becoming such a, I mean, we're, just, we're at like a kind of an event horizon, it feels like, with some of that stuff. Yeah. Uh, but by the way, and I, I, you know, for any of your uh, listeners who mm-hmm. track incomplete thoughts, uh, I was saying that, you know, the film goes all the way back to Haight-Ashbury, 1967, when, you know, some members of the group the group, you know, the, the overall endeavor that I'm uh, involved with started a theater called Theater of All Possibilities. Mm-hmm. They ran a cafe, Sign of the Fool, in San Francisco to support themselves. And they started thinking about, and very soon when the whole hippie thing, you know, became co-opted by Madison Avenue as a mm-hmm. new way of selling, you know, cool jeans and shirts and, and whatever. Yeah. You know, the culture that we live in is really good at appropriating things and oh, experts tri- tri- trivializing them and commercializing them. So, you know, in retrospect, and, you know, I wasn't really part of that group, but there was a whole uh, movement. They said, Mr. Hippie, that whole thing is finished. We're not going to play that game anymore that we've been pushed into. And there was a, a, a great hunger among, you know, the the young people of that time to how do we do things differently? How do we make communities? How do we build buildings for ourselves? How do we grow food in a more ecological way? Mm-hmm. You know, all of that. How can we become really practical and, you know, change the world for ourselves by, by implementing new things? Now, I guess, you know, and during, during that period when I first came to New Mexico, Northern New Mexico is a hotbed of hippie communes. <laughs> and 
you know, we never identified ourselves as either hippies or communes. But, you know, those are kind of my generation. I, you know, those are lovely people. I ne we never wanted to be put into any of those boxes mm -hmm. or even into the counterculture. You know, screw that. You know, I don't think that uh, the mass culture, and it's only gotten way worse over the next 50 years, that's not a culture at all. So don't call us a counterculture. Actually doing intelligent things, this is mainstream. Yeah, this at least it should be. That should be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because the idea of counterculture, that would that the word implies counter to something. So it's, when you're talking right. about something that's very cogent and makes a lot of sense, it shouldn't be considered counter. Yeah, I mean, you know, all of that puts you into like some little box where yeah. people, and you know, as soon as you get put into a box and people say, well, that's who they are and we can ignore them and continue. <laughs> Yeah, anyway, so, so you know, back to, back to Biosphere 2, you know, friends of ours, when we started that project, and that was a huge endeavor. I mean, people Massive. who don't know it should really, really Google it, look at the movie, and here's the first time I'm going to introduce, you know, there's a new edition of Life Under Glass. We've now subtitled it Crucial Lessons in Planetary Stewardship from Two Years in Biosphere 2. And I'm a co-author along with two of the other of the eight Biospherians. Right. We, we wrote this book before we left Biosphere 2 in 1993. So we've kept that, that text because it gives you some of the drama, some of the, you know, the nitty gritty yeah. of what life was like in Biosphere 2. And we've updated it with, you know, what, what is its relevance now to our global situation? and research highlights, what did we do after, all, all that stuff, beautiful photographs, a wonderful publication. Buy it from Synergetic Press. Which Goes, is all, that's straight from the source. Or, you know, hey, if you buy it from another one, you know, write a review. Yeah, good. at least. But, but anyway, you know, back to my thought. You know, mm -hmm. people at the time of Bias for Two said, this is a really great project, but you're 50 years ahead of your time. Yeah, that's a, that's a thing that happens a lot where something great happens at a time that is misunderstood by a lot of people during the time it happens. It happens a lot with, feels like with a lot of technological stuff happens a little too early and then people, something happens later. But so, I mean, what do you, what do you guys say to that when people say that to you? Oh, I mean, I think it's totally true. But the <laughs> thing is that, you know, we're kind of on an accelerated path. Yeah the modern world. So in the roughly 25 years since Biosphere 2, since, you know, the project ceased being a closed system with Biospherians, you know, the world is really caught up. That, that's why I was saying, if we built Biosphere 2 now, and things that, you know, you know, it's amazing the taboos that exist in the world of science. You know, first yeah. off, science is dominated by small-scale it's a little bit pejorative, but uh, reductionist scientists who try to look at the micro scale and everything. Mm -hmm. So Biosphere 2 was, was going to be controversial because we had plenty of those kind of scientists and engineers, but it was inherently a very holistic systems level experiment. And the cent let me tell you the central premise of Biosphere 2, which was also considered outside the bounds of legitimate science by especially small scale scientists. There are a lot, a lot of really great scientists 
who really um, applauded, got involved with Biosphere 2, etc. Et uh, but for those people, it couldn't be science because there was no replication. We should have built 10 biospheres and then run controlled experiments, you know, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, the, the arrogance of some reductionist scientist is because that's the only way of doing science that they know, that you set up highly controlled, small experiments in laboratories, very rarely outside in, in great nature and ecology. And then you set up five or 10 replicates, you control mm-hmm. everything. You know, they think that that's the only way of doing science. Yeah, that's very that's, reductive. That's, ridic- that's ridiculous. And, you know, a great deal of science and, you know, all of our, our information about climate change really comes from observational science. Astronomy comes from observational science, geology, right. et cetera, it's not from a lab. They're not reproducing things. They're observing what happens and noting it and then inferring from that data. Yeah. So, you know, so bias for two, that the, you know, the accusation, you know, and it was picked up by the mainstream media was that it can't be science because it's not replicated. And the system is so complex, even though, you know, by earth standards, bias for two was incredibly simplified. Oh Yeah. It only covered three acres. We only had, you know, tiny analogs, half acre um, analogs of, you know, rainforest, savanna, right. et cetera, et cetera. And, and what I love about Biosphere 2, you know, what actually happened was that we had this pre- completely unpredicted decline in oxygen. Mm-hmm. And uh, so according to these reductionist scientists, we could never figure out what was causing it. This is actually when Columbia University and some of their researchers got involved and actually using some very sophisticated, including, you know, good analytic reductionist science, you know, introducing isotopes, taking concrete cores. We actually figured out within a few months where the oxygen was going and what the imbalance in the system was. So we actually did that and I followed climate change and I haven't checked this in the last three months, but there's still this ongoing um, issue among scientists that there's missing carbon. And it's, well, not, where, it's where, not did a, the, huh? where did the oxygen go? Oh, okay. But, it, but anyway, I just want to point out, that, okay. you know, on planet earth, you know, as much as we're studying climate change, there is like a billion tons of carbon that no annually that no one knows where it comes from and where it goes. Mm-hmm. And classically, the ocean people say it must be in forest soils, and the terrestrial <laughs> ecologists say, you know, you guys have so little, you know, real data about the ocean, which right. is vast and covers two thirds of. You know, it's probably something that's happening in the marine environment. Yeah, anyway, so the oxygen, and and as I say, what I love about it, and what was really underappreciated at the time, was bias for two was not an illustration of of how bright we and our, you know, network of scientists and engineers were. Mm -hmm. It was an experiment. 
And the central premise of that experiment was that we could learn how to build mini biospheres as a tool for understanding, oh, what's the importance of our global biosphere? It's our life support system. It's everything. It's everything. It's everything, which is amazing that I think mostly now people don't have to, you know, get the word spelled for them. But do people really get their minds around, you know, what does it mean that we have a, a biosphere on planet Earth mm -hmm. and that all humans are, you know, one of many species that are supported by that biosphere? Anyway, the central premise of Biosphere 2 was that we could redesign the technology needed to make a artificial world in a way, you know, uh, because a lot of nature had to be excluded from Biosphere 2. We could redesign the technosphere, as the Russians call it, to be compatible and harmonious with a biospheric living world. So that's one of the really revolutionary ideas of Biosphere 2. Mm -hmm. And the second one was that unexpected things are going to happen. So what I really love about oxygen is that, you know, I, I was a director of the project and sat in on both our scientific advisory committee meetings and our project review committee. And, you know, we were not going into this la la la. We would end the meeting with going around the table. What are the top five or 10 nightmares that you can see happening in Biosphere 2 that keep you awake at night. Uh -huh. And there are plenty. There are I'm plenty. sure. Plenty you avoided. <laughs> but, but oxygen disappearing from the atmosphere was never on anyone's list. Really, it wasn't? No. Wow. What were some of the things that were on the list? Oh, that we couldn't actually maintain separate biomes. Okay, here's a word for your listeners. Right. We all kind of intuitively know what a biome is because a tropical rainforest is a biome and mm -hmm. grasslands, rangelands are biomes, tropical savannas, coral reefs, you know, wetlands and, and uh, river systems are biomes. So you thought anyway, they would cross? Yeah, that they, they would amalgamate. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that invasive species would turn it into one overrun homogenous uh, uh, system. Right. We wouldn't be able to maintain. And Biosphere 2 is really kick-ass. You know, within that three acres and under about 75 feet tall ceilings, we had a tropical rainforest, a tropical savanna, mm -hmm. a thorn scrub, a coastal fog desert, a Everglades system with seven zones from wow. freshwater marsh to three types of mangroves, a living ocean with a still the world's largest, you know, human-made coral reef. Wow. And then in addition to that, of course, we had a farm to feed the people, and that farm had to be, you know, beyond organic, because Biosphere 2 is also intended to be a 100-year experiment. Yeah. So the premise of Biosphere 2 is so inherently optimistic, and I think, you know, and our architects rightly decided to make it a stunning structure. And they kind of paid homage to world architecture. So this, the structure of Biosphere 2 includes kind of ziggurat, step pyramids, barrel vaults like you would see in Mesopotamia. Yeah. Uh, Bucky Fuller was a great inspiration and, and happily a friend of, of the Institute. Uh, you know, two geodesic domes that covered our, 
our lungs, our variable volume structures. Yeah, those are so interesting. I watched some videos on that. I just, that's some, it's crazy that those things were built. It just seems like a, it seems very science fiction that it's a, it was a thing. <laughs> well, you know, there's a line which I, you know, frankly, I don't even remember saying because I did probably 10 hours or 12 hours of interviews. Mm-hmm. But I had, there's a line in Spaceship Earth where I say, Biosphere 2 was science fiction without the fiction. Yeah, that's in the trailer, actually. I remember that. Quite, I remember that. <laughs> yeah. It really is, though. It's, it's so, I mean, that's what was so appealing to me when I first learned about it when I was you know, much younger, when it first came out, was it feels like this thing that was an impossibility. It's feel, if it was such a, uh, such a bold endeavor. Well, that's what's so cool about that is that um, it was still it was so successful and so bold. It just seems like a like it, completely impossible. The, well, that's what, that, yeah, that's what I love about Biosphere Two is virtually everything that we attempted to do. All of the learned experts said can't be done. Uh huh. Can't take a tropical rainforest from you know those zones. You know, the, the project site for people who are unaware, Southern Arizona is very temperate. We're up at 3,900 feet, which is roughly a kilometer in altitude. Okay. So it's slightly mountainous, foothills of the mountains. But, you know, with, with a, you know, pronounced winter and uh, short days, short sunlight and a long summer season. So they said, you know, you can't, you can't translate an Amazonian rainforest into southern Arizona. You can't say coral reefs and put yeah. them in a made ocean. You know, and also, and this is a big one, you can't seal that structure that you've designed to make it virtually airtight to where you can say that's a separate world. Right. The other beautiful thing, you know, I, I was doing a lot of liaison. I was the director of, you know, here's a, here's a, uh, a padded uh, title. I was the director of Earth and Space Applications for Space Biosphere Ventures, which, which gave me the, the cachet to uh, liaison with a lot of the scientific community and the space community, which included the enormous fund. The, the leaders in the field of closed systems were in the Soviet Union. Wow, and I that, that. You know, that was a really closed world. It was just beginning to open up under Gorbachev. And, the, you know, those guys, you know, just loved Biosphere 2 because it was taking the, the work that they did and they cooperated enormously and really helped us, you know, because they had so many years of practical experience. But they could see that it was taking uh, the field into a biospheric level. Wow. So where did the oxygen go? The oxygen was mostly absorbed into unsealed concrete. Unsealed concrete. You wow. Biosphere 2 is an enormous, you know, just an engineering architectural marvel. And because we were deathly afraid of sick building syndrome, of the buildup of indoor yeah. gases. So why was that concrete unsealed? Because the because sealants are toxic, right? Exactly. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That was part of the beauty of the, you know, the... the Biosphere 2 would have been, in my, my estimation, an enormous success, even if we had, had never put people inside and run three years of, of experiments. 
because we, we, got, we enlisted uh, a really innovative group of engineers and world-class ecologists to design the thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the first step was engineers ordinarily don't, you know, they don't hardly habit the same airspace as ecologists. Yeah. And ecologists tend to, when they hear the engineers are coming, oh my God, my beautiful, whatever it is, is going to be the bulldozers and roads. Yeah, there's you know, definitely, they're kind of contra- contrary to a lot of senses. Yeah, which is ridiculous. Uh, right. You know, so they had to learn that, you know, their own, uh, they had to, to learn a common language. And, and my joke at the time was the engineers and ecologists couldn't even insult each other because they were just talking <laughs> cross purposes. And, you know, the first rebellion in Biosphere 2 was during the design phase. The really? engineers, okay. first off, the engineers said, you know, let's just do a big box store design. It's going to make construction so much easier. Can you just imagine if we had done a Target or Walmart or, you know, pick your big box store. Yeah. And that had housed Biosphere 2. I think living inside of it would have been a real bummer for two years. Yeah, totally. That, that's the thing that gets, it gets discounted so much is the idea that, um, I mean, I think about that a lot in terms of gardening, how you can have a very successful garden that's super ugly. You can have a very pretty garden that's not very successful. But if you have both of them, that's a really exceptional thing. And that's the best way to have it is to have a garden that you like to look at that also produces a lot because I think they help each other. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's, you know, we live under so many myths in, in, you know, the current modern world mm-hmm. and this myth that, you know, including beauty makes things less efficient, this you know, is it's absurd. It's <laughs> insane. I, I remember, you know, and I, I get around the world, uh, after Biosphere 2, I was so in love with our sewage system, our constructed wetlands, that I started a business and we, we put these beautiful natural systems in, into 14 countries. And I, I did a lot of work in Mexico. And I remember, you know, taking a side trip to uh, a indigenous Chiapas uh, area. And I didn't speak, you know, Spanish worth a damn. But this young kid took me on a tour of both of the forests down there, the tropical forest in Chiapas. And then we, were, we went by a milpa, which is their agricultural field. And they're still slash and burn agriculturalists. Mm. Yeah, okay, so there's the corn and the beans and the, and the squash and, you know, these other crops I was familiar with. And then there was a whole lot of flowers. Right. And I remember saying to the kid, what why are there flowers? And he looked at me like I was the biggest moron he had ever encountered in his life. Yeah. And he said, and I don't know how it came out in Spanish, but I could understand, because it's beautiful, stupid. That's funny. Yeah, you yeah. Know, so anyway, so it said, yeah, Biosphere 2, and if we had not made it beautiful, that would have been really presumptuous. Because Definitely. I like it, a, a colleague, Tony Burgess, who is a one of our major uh, ecological consultants called Biosphere 2 a cathedral to Gaia. Wow. Yeah. I, I know Jim Lovelock. I have enormous respect for him. Uh, that's not what it was, but, but that spirit, you know, that we're all children of the biosphere. And if we're going to make a mini biosphere, you know, we want it to be really diverse by, you know, have as many species as we can in there. 
and really limit humans and our activities to our habitat, you know, where we lived and had workshops and laboratories and, and had our fun and parties, our farm. We were not going to cut down the rainforest if we were short of food. The wilderness, yeah. just having those wilderness systems in there, I think is a standing rebuke to the way we're degrading uh, our Earth's biosphere. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, definitely. That makes me think about the, um, I noticed that you guys were growing Brugmansia in there. Yeah. I was like, that to me seems like something I would never imagine that growing there. Is there a reason you guys had that growing in the biosphere too? Well, you know, you know, some of our consultants uh, were from the New York Botanic Garden and Mm -hmm. Kew Gardens. Actually, he's now Sir Gillian Prance. Wow. That's a good name. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, anyway, he was the vice president of research and a really renowned, he's probably one of the top uh, ethnobotanists and botanists of the Amazon in the world. And okay. during the time that, you know, Biosphere 2 took about 10 years from creation to, you know, the end of the second mission, he became the director of the, of the Royal Botanic Gardens at Kew. So we had, you know, rainforest specialists from two of the best botanic gardens in the world working on it. So yeah, Brogmanzi was in there. The plants that make ayahuasca were in there, Banisteria wow. capi, because yeah. that's ecology, you know, so, you know, so, that that's a, another beautiful story. And, and we were lucky enough to become good friends with uh, Richard Evan Schultes. If people have seen uh, The Embrace of the Serpent, that Chilean movie. All right. And I think Wade Davis, another of our friends uh, who wrote a beautiful book honoring his mentor and teacher, Rich and Everett Schultes. Yeah, so, you know, so ethnobotany was a really important part of the Institute of Ecotechnics uh, orientation. When we built our ship, we sent it uh, down to the Amazon to do two years of ethnobotanical work, working with local shamans and indigenous people. So that, that's the sailboat you guys built. Uh, that was the first thing that the Ecotechnics did. That was that lasted a pretty long time, right? You guys traveled all over the world with that. It uh, it sailed for close to forty years, and wow. uh, the fat lady hasn't sung. It's being rebuilt in south of Barcelona now. Wow. So so, so what you're saying basically with the Brigmanzia, its purpose, uh, it didn't have did it have not have a direct purpose in there other than being part of the rainforest environment? Or are you saying that it had a purpose in the sense that it has a medicinal use? Well, you know, we wanted, uh, you know, Biosphere 2 to be seen. And mm-hmm. I love that even now they're using the rainforest. Again, one of these things that couldn't be done. They're using the rainforest and Biosphere 2 to do simulations of mm-hmm. climate change scenarios and comparing Biosphere 2 with, uh, with natural rainforest areas. And, you know, we've kind of passed over that. And people who watch the movie, the movie is wonderful, but there's kind of an overemphasis on the theater background of myself and the others. So I do, you know, I've mentioned the word Institute of Ecotechnics. And so after about three or four years of working on this, reversing desertification and making Oasis, you know, we had the insight that What's the real problem in the world today? It's that humans and our technology 
are not really well integrated with the ecology at the local level or at the planetary level, mm -hmm. at the global level. So Ecotechnics was kind of building on, uh, there's a wonderful thinker called Lewis Mumford, okay. who studied the evolution of technology. And he was kind of appalled by megatechnics, think, you know, the first part of the 20th century. Right. And so said that the next step in, in uh, technology evolution should be biotechnics, you know, where, where technology is responsive to life. And I think he was mostly thinking about the humans, you know, and, right. and think about it, you know, we built cities and infrastructures, and then we realized that this has now dehumanized us in yet another way. So we kind of built on what Mumford had said, and, you know, it's, the, the idea was that technics need to be integrated with eco, with the world of nature. And of course, you know, isn't it interesting that economics and ecology have the same root? It is. Now, and now we have a, an economic system, which apparently the more the, the biosphere is overexploited and degraded, the more people, you know, make money on the short term. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's contrary to the very thing it is, huh? It's, Destroying our insight was, uh, you know, so we're a small institute, maybe 50 to 100 people are its members and work on our projects. But we took as our theme, let's let's take on projects in challenging environments where conventional solutions, conventional technology, economics don't work. Usually ecological devastation also is an area of cultural uh, conflict and mm -hmm. you know since we are you know we glory in cultural diversity mm -hmm. as much as we can you know so so let's take projects there and let's see if we can try something out of the box with the goal of upgrading the ecology and making the economics better you know we didn't use the word sustainable because that, and i and we could we should have a discussion about that I think we should drop sustainable and talk about regenerative. Yeah. Sustainable gets used way too much for things that are definitely not sustainable, but we, right. yeah, regenerative, we, you said regeneratory or regenerative, regenerative. Regenerative. I mean, the yeah. idea of being, you know, sustainability and, you know, and, and when I went back uh, to get my graduate degrees after advisor too, I took courses in ecological economics and sustainability and sustainable development may or may not be an oxymoron. But the thing <laughs> is, I think the underlying premise of sustainability is that we want things to be able to continue. Mm -hmm. And I don't know about you, but I look around the world and I say, there are a lot of things that we should absolutely rethink, rebuild, re-engineer. You know, yeah. I don't yeah. want to sustain racism, misogyny, income inequality, you know, we could go on and on and on and on. I, I think you get my drift. Yeah. So I, lo I love the idea that really what we should be looking at is how can we regenerate both the human spirit and the quality of human life and maintain our cultural and every other kind of human diversity in a beautiful, vibrant biosphere. Is there that stuff that you're working on now that you think lends itself toward that idea? Well, you know, I guess I'm kind of a spokesperson for Biosphere 2 because like the astronauts, 
I had a very special experience in Biosphere mm -hmm. 2. And I hope we have, do have time to talk about that. Yeah. But yeah, yeah I mean, so we have echo-tetting projects, you know, ongoing, you know, you know not, I wouldn't say around the world. We have a number of them. And we've made alliances with like-minded people in Catalonia, in Brazil, in Argentina, etc. I mean, you know, there are a lot of people doing great work around the planet. And, and that still guides our, our philosophy, eco-techniques. How can we harmonize the world of human, humans and everything that we do technologically, including ranching and farming, you know, with the world of our biosphere? So, well, for, for example, a, a project that I, I love to go down and help with, in Puerto Rico, we were able to buy at pretty bargain uh, basement rates back in 1984, close to a thousand acres of secondary rainforest in the mountains of Puerto Rico. And the, the thrust of that project is how can we develop, you know, methods of sustainable forestry, sustainable timber in the rainforest? Right. How can we make it productive with, while maintaining and enriching that rainforest ecology? So that, that's where enterprise, you know, and I'm all for, national parks, marine zones, you know, where fishing is highly controlled, if not f forbidden. But it, you know, it doesn't address, and I think this is where my group has made, you know, a, some, something of a contribution. Aside from just protecting areas, and basically either excluding or limiting human action in them, mm -hmm. how do we actually work with the resources that the planet has in a regenerative way where we actually, because we were there, the ecology becomes richer and there's more biomass and, you know, we make the ecological pie greater. Yeah. You sort of like, like a shepherd of, of it instead of being like a, um, well, because obviously clear cut, any type of stuff like that is terrible, but there's also, you're able to extract resources, but make the area you're extracting resources better so because of it and not you're not having to compromise you're actually making the thing better yeah you know i mean you know one of our great mentors and heroes in puerto rico is a guy named frank wadsworth he came there and if anyone's been to puerto rico it's the only tropical uh, rainforest that's part of the u.s national park service okay you know, el yunque uh, loquio rainforest you know, but uh, Frank uh, supervised and catalyzed the planting of millions and millions and millions of trees. And his frustration is he's an old time forester. And okay. so he said, you know, then we, we restore the ecology, you know, reverse the erosion and, you know, deep deforestation, et cetera. But I want my trees to be used. You right. Know, so that's yeah. what always gets me is that people talk about like the national forest and stuff. I always have to remind them that the department of the interior, uh, the, they're under the department of agriculture for a reason. So the forests are protected, but they're protected by the department of agriculture. So if they need to cut them down, they're going to cut them down <laughs> because that's technically what they are. You know, it's that thing where it's kind of a, uh, I don't, know, I don't know just what you said that is. It's kind of ironic, I guess. Is that the, I, I know. And, yeah. uh, you know, I've read, I've read books about the scams of the Forest Service and mm -hmm. how they're selling the resources 
for pennies on the dollar to you know forestry people you know but but there but there's another approach where you make use of and beyond sustainable yeah so i mean you know clearly and it's ironic by the way if you go around the southwest it'll look like there's beautiful forests everywhere because they know now to leave a strip of forest to well, hide the clear, yeah the hide oh. cutting behind it i didn't so know that i never heard of that that's that's so devious <laughs> I didn't well, you know, know that. they they understand that that's why ecotech now you probably could get a breakfast cereal that's named ecotech or whatever yeah or a power a power drink yeah God. you know so so we were a little bit ahead of the curve but you know, to me, we, we know enough, and this was our insight back then, we know enough to, you know, deal much more sensitively and creatively, you know, as responsible. And, you know, when, when people say we're stewards of the biosphere, you know, I think that kind of overemphasizes, you know, the human role. Mm-hmm. We need to be stewards of ourselves, you know, right. uh, <laughs> The main, the main factor out of control in our biosphere are humans, our population, our technologies, our chemicals. We could go on and on and on and on and on. So if we could actually steward ourselves, mm-hmm. and, and this is back to the insight that I wanted to get back to, you know, because, okay, the, there's these legacies of biosphere too. We reached close to a billion people, close to a billion people before the internet watched us re-enter Earth. We called it the re-entry ceremony in September 1993. And we were sending them images that biospherians, like the eight of us, we take tender loving care of our little biosphere because we know damn well, we know it at a cellular level, that this biosphere is the reason that we're happy and healthy. Right. That's a huge lesson. You know, so so that understanding, I think, you know, the gift that I was given to experience that when you get into a small closed system, it's amazing. You, you know, you get out of this fantasy that, you know, the environment is something outside of yourself. You're not separate from it all. You're plugged into it deeply and directly. Yeah. That's interests me a lot about your work because I know you'd worked with, with the sewage system in the, in the biosphere. And to me, that's, that's an aspect of landscape and uh, ecology that I think is like overlooked a lot because it's not, it's obviously not sexy because you're dealing with, uh, with um, sewage. <laughs> it's just, this is thing that's so interesting that people, um, I think most people probably can't even imagine the idea that like not having plumbing or not all these things that we think we have to have when actually there's all these things in place that naturally break down that take care of bad things and transmute them into things that are useful. Uh, I'm not against plumbing. Right. Neither am I. I'm not against plumbing either, but I guess I mean the idea of just the, uh, how divorced we are from the idea of waste management. I, I know, you know, and, and, uh, so we came up with this word for the kind of systems that we build. And one of my previous books back uh, six years was The Wastewater Gardener. Okay. Preserving, preserving the planet one flush at a time. But, you know, but it's kind of a tragedy that we even have a word called wastewater. Mm-hmm. So, uh, 
Yeah, it's ironic. Know, my, my mission there, and and it was really inspired, Johnny, just just by what you're saying. So I, you know, here I am, this New York City kid. I'm in charge of the sewage system for a small world. Right. And a beautiful system with flowers and you know vibrantly growing, you know, semi-tropical vegetation. And the people going around the, the biosphere, you know, are within a few feet, you know, through the glass. I can't hear them. But I can hear, you know, I, I, can, I can figure the tour guide is explaining that this is a sewage system of Biosphere 2. And I just watched the looks of amazement, of astonishment. Wow. And it occurred to me, you know, because one of the beauties of living in a small world is that everything makes sense. And there isn't, you know, this idea that, oh, pollution doesn't matter because we could throw it away. Mm-hmm. We can build, you know, tall smokestacks and air pollution goes somewhere. We can build, which they do, you know, huge pipes out into the ocean to get rid of our sewage and chemical effluence. There's no way in Biosphere 2. But what really got me was that these constructed wetlands, wastewater gardens, as I term them, were a way of connecting people to a little reality of our world. Mm-hmm. If you're a modern person, you know, you turn on a tap in your house and water comes in for your sinks, for your laundry, for your dishwasher, for your showers, for your cooking, etc. And then you, you know, you have drains that take that water away or you go and you deposit in a flush toilet. And most people have no idea where the water comes from know where their quote wastewater goes to yeah love about wastewater gardens is you could do them at a really micro scale an individual house or a community they've been done for small cities and towns but you can connect people to that reality Mm -hmm. and if the reality is and, and you know because i went and took courses in civil engineering and sewage treatment you really don't it's not a great experience to go to if you live in a city, your city sewage system. Pretty yeah, not nasty. the best. Really pretty, pretty nasty. But if you walk outside and you just flush the toilet and you look at these beautiful plants that are growing more luxuriantly because now you've sent them fresh water and all those nutrients mm-hmm. that are contained in, in you know, the byproducts of human metabolism, it's amazing. People, you know, people kind of get an Eureka moment and they become more connected to the realities that all of us have as modern human beings. Yeah, you realize that that, that stuff that you think think is just goes to someplace you can't see is actually uh, fuel. I remember reading about some, some uh, grove of walnut trees in Pasadena. They were using sewage to fertilize the walnuts and all these people who bought them said they're the best walnuts they've ever had in their entire life, but they got shut yeah. down by the city because they deemed it a health hazard when actually, you know, it, I guess potentially it was if you st- decided to eat off the ground where the walnut trees were growing, maybe you would get something, but you know, the walnut trees were digesting all this stuff and it was yeah. so, so effective, but, but because of such a stigma around it, it got shut down because yeah, it's just, I don't know, that kind of stuff is uh, it's bothersome. A little you know, so we love to, to make the wastewater gardens. You know, we speak to the people, the communities that they're going into and say, what kind of plants do you want to be growing there? 
beautiful decorative plants, fruit trees. Fruit trees are really great because then, you know, there isn't any contact with the sewage. And I build yeah. systems. I build systems where there's no exposed water, so there's no smell, there's no mosquito breeding, you know, right. et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. No, it it's uh it's a taboo. And you know, when you think about it, you know, wastewater it's a well, there's there's a book I wrote. It's, you know, one of these really quintessential modern tragedies because yeah. in most of the world, and we do a lot of projects in quote unquote developing countries, there's really no effective sewage treatment. And it is yeah. a disaster. It's a disaster for human health in terms of waterborne diseases, including mm -hmm. diarrhea, which is a huge killer of young kids because that sewage, if it's not taken care of properly, will affect drinking water and it pollutes and degrades natural environments. Yeah. Especially, then, yeah, it's all about the proper yeah, treatment of it. Let, let me do, and then on the flip side, we have the Western wealthy countries where we spend enormous, enormous sums of money, just staggering amounts of money to pump entire cities to one or two centralized sewage treatment plants where a high tech process that relies on microbes happen and then what do we do? We, we basically discharge that water into rivers, the groundwater, or into the ocean. We don't, we're basically throwing away fresh water and nutrients, which are in scarce supply. Yeah, I didn't know that. Is that how most of those systems were? Just dump it? Why do they do that? Because it's... Uh... Because they have, a, they have uh, do you know the word paradigm? Yeah. Paradigm is kind of like a model of the world. Right. You know, so, you know, in terms of uh, regenerating the world and creating it uh, as a happier place for humans and the biosphere, you know, there are so many outmoded paradigms. And, you know, so I've researched this and, and I got a degree at uh, University of Florida in environmental engineering. And for, you know, there are still people who have this uh, motto, which started a few centuries ago, the solution to pollution is dilution. I've never heard that before. So if you have a sewage treatment plant mm -hmm. and you have the stuff and, you know, even if you've dumped chlorine to kill the pathogens and whatever, it's a, another nasty environmental uh, carcinogen. You know what their, their model is, this is toxic. This causes disease. And it does. You have to remember a few hundred years ago in American, European, Asian cities, sewage was everywhere and killing people. So, you know, the modern sewage treatment plant was a response, but the paradigm that they're following is this stuff is toxic and we can't let people do things creatively and usefully with it. We need to, you know, whatever infrastructure to pump this stuff uphill for 10 or 15 miles to a sewage treatment plant. Yeah. That's what we have to do in the name of public health. So they're in the treatment of a toxic waste that's really one of the, anywhere there's people, you have this incredible resource. Right. You, you have our byproducts that are perfect plant food to you know, grow beautiful landscapes, gardens, food crops, if you do it intelligently. Yeah. So they're, they're in the wrong paradigm. And, and the sad thing is that the developing world don't, ha don't have the money you know, when I was at the University of Florida, as you know, in one of my classes, I took as a project, they had just put in a $12 million sewage treatment plant. $12 billion. 
No, twelve million. Okay, I was going to say. But but <laughs> but for but for Atlanta, you know, went bankrupt when Wall Street helped them pay for a multi-billion-dollar uh, sewage treatment plant. Yeah. You know, so I I did an analysis of that plant, and it's insanity. You know, it's just totally insane okay. because what what they're doing is detoxifying the stuff, and then they dump it into you know into the rivers of Florida degrading those rivers yeah productive use well there, there are a few examples but it but anyway let's not get too deeply into that yeah we could get too into sewage to me you know that that's you know for the younger generation you know the reinvention of our world is a you know an oyster and it's just asking to be done you know we're getting a taste of that in really do we have to drive these polluting cars that run on fossil fuels that are killing people. Air pollution is a major killer of human beings and degrading yeah. of our environment. Let's rethink our energy system. But that kind of rethinking should happen everywhere. It needs to happen everywhere. Do you think that the uh, the pandemic is uh, basically, in some way, going to force everyone's hand for a lot of these things? Where it will book, where instead of it being like a proactive type of thing that we need to get people on board for, it's going to either force people to do that or it's going to lessen the population so much that people won't be as concerned with uh, like pollution and sustainability and all that stuff because there would just be less people. Well, I don't think that COVID is going to be like the Black Plague of Europe that wiped mm -hmm. out what was it one third of the population right what I'm, what i'm hoping but you know i i i think that hope and keeping your uh enthusiasm your optimism about the future is critically important so you know my optimistic reading of it is that because you know people in so many cities have seen those cities become you know less polluted you know clear skies right we have a project at the Institute of Ecotechnics in London, the October Gallery. And, you know, our resident managers there is saying, it's amazing, you know, when, when traffic got reduced to one-tenth of what it was, yeah. you know, central London has become a pleasant place to go walking. And I love London. It's my, my adopted world city now. But when I come from a place like Australia, where I've worked for so many years, or New Mexico, I can feel my organism tightening up and, you know, my automatically just out of survival, you know, you're taking in a minimum of breath because it's so nasty. Yep, so I'm I mean, it's a wake up that we, you know, mm -hmm. cities don't have to be like this. Yeah. I, I, I hope that too. It seems like now the stuff is, what I worry about is uh, sort of like almost like a rubber band effect or whatever you want to call it, where, um, the, when things open back up again, there's going to be such a rush to make up for lost time that it's going to be make pollution and all these things so much worse because there's a lot of things I think now that are being overlooked because COVID is such on, on people's minds that they're like, why would we worry about a fraud? Why would we worry about um, pollution? Why would we worry about environmental hazards when we have this direct hazard of disease and i just i that's what i kind of fear being the case in some point in the future maybe in maybe this year even well you know uh and it's ironic because i i, I 
I was born in 1947, and I kind of feel like I'm a child of the 60s. Right. And that, that was a pretty exuberant era, you know, where yeah. taboos were being broken, and there was a great sense that, you know, this world can be, and, you know, and it was the beginning of the environmental movement. I think within a year of the founding of Synergia Ranch here in New Mexico was the first Earth Day. And I, you know, I look at and I love, you know, speaking to whoever I speak to, but I especially like speaking to young people because a lot of the lessons that took the older generation so long to learn, you know, is part of the understanding of the young generation. Mm -hmm. And this idea that, you know, we old fogies and I'm an old geezer now, I'm in my seventies, you know, we're going to be gone. You know, it's your world. It, it's and even your kid's world. You know, this is the this is the thing, and and you know when I look at and my first love was not philosophy, it was history. Uh, you know, the wonderful lessons of history is that every uh, system of control, every ism, every religion, every empire has its day. Yeah. And so, yeah, it, it feels like that. There's a lot of things that are sort of coming to a maybe a. I guess a close now or a rapid change because there's, the, there's a lot of people who say that, um, well, I guess it kind of depends, but there's the idea that we're a lot of people expect a, like a catastrophe or a, uh, what do you call it? An apocalypse. But I mean, everything I've always read about that kind of thing is it, it's not going to be dramatic. It'll be slow. And that's what makes it the scary thing is that, it's going to happen slow enough to where we're not going to be super aware. Only some people will be aware of it. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, apocalyptic events are, uh, they're bad. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's really hard to cheer an apocalypse and mass die-offs of humans because as you, as you say, that's going to just suck up a lot of resources. Right. A friend of ours, Claudio Naranjo, who is a wonderful uh, psychiatrist. He was an ayahuascaro, et cetera. His uh, po post-human book is The Revolution We Are Waiting For. And I was just reading the prologue. And he's saying, you know, that the revolution is happening now. And it's really marked by a change of consciousness. Okay. You know, so it's not, you know, people who are still waiting for a techno fix or, you know, some deus ex machina, some yeah. you know, divine intervention. I mean, forget about it. I think the revolution is actually happening. And when I give talks about bias for two, you know, I end up and, you know, people are always asking, what can I do? Well, you know, the first thing that you can do is wake up. And I love that woke has a lot of other connotations and I may not know all of them. Right. You know, that is the thing is, you know, we're humans collectively are living in some kind of daydream. And part yeah. of the daydream is that we think, like you were saying, that we're isolated from nature, mm -hmm. that you know, humans are the crown of creation and, you know, God or whoever or whatever your holy book gave us a license to, you know, destroy the planet and do whatever the hell we want to do. Yeah. And that, that is just so not the case. And, you know, the nice thing about losing this fantasy is that the reality, the reality, the metabolic truth of our existence is so awesome. Yeah. It is absolutely awesome. If you start to investigate and try to 
empower your bodily intelligence to understand how much inseparably a part of Earth's biosphere you are. That is like a joyous thing to wake up. How lucky we humans are that we live on this planet that's had a biosphere for four billion years and has created conditions so conducive to our and all these other species life. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty exceptional. It's the kind of thing where, like you mentioned ayahuasca, it feels like that could be something that would be um, good to introduce into the water treatment plant. And that might maybe spur something <laughs> like, like that. You don't want, you don't want to do that. <laughs> you don't want to do that. We have, we have enough mental health problems. That's true. Yeah. Not everyone's equipped for that. You know, the really wonderful thing about this whole concept of waking up mm-hmm. is that there are myriad paths of doing it. Yeah. You know, probably holding your breath and, you know, being on particular starvation diet, you know, they're, they're you know, they're as manifold as, as we are. And I, I wouldn't call myself a Buddhist, but, you know, I've hung around Buddhist circles, etc., cetera, mm-hmm. taken some teachings from the Dalai Lama. And the wonderful thing about Buddhism is that the eightfold path begins with changing your thinking. Mm-hmm. The Sufis in the Middle East call it metanoia. And, you know, we're not going to get solved by a techno fix, although I'm all for renewable energies and yeah. the inness of humans. You know, but it starts personally by you changing your attitude, your understanding of who you are. And the, and the wonderful, difficult second step after you're woke to the fact that you're a biospherian mm-hmm. is that your job is to fall in love with the biosphere and every manifestation of it, including the humans around you. We're all children of the biosphere. You like Bengal tigers and saguaro cacti and boab trees or whatever. Love humans, man. <laughs> We yeah. are another amazing creation of our Earth's biosphere. Yeah, definitely. It's the kind of thing where I think it, sometimes it, it's, it's hard for a lot of people to experience that feeling. And that's why I guess that's why I mentioned ayahuasca. I feel like a lot of people uh, need that shortcut or they almost need to be like kind of like, it's like a, a shock to to shake to put put your mind in a place where you can see that stuff yeah no i i agree and you yeah. know however you however you get it and you know definitely um psychedelics and other ways of changing your consciousness you know the sufis and, and again i'm not a sufi but i've read a lot of their literature they say that you know these kind of substances are really valuable because they give you a taste of other possibilities Right. And then the work is how do we, you know, how do I and the people that I'm involved with, my family, my community, etc. Which, by the way, I'm also hoping that COVID makes us a little bit more aware of our neighborhood, our street, our apartment block. <laughs> you yeah. know, because, you know, that, that I think is really where change can happen. And, and just like Spaceship Earth, you know, it has a really good illustration. And I think, you know, the history I've been living is that small groups of people, if they can, you know, unify behind worthwhile goals can really make a difference. Yeah. It doesn't take a whole lot. It just takes a little bit of consistency. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. 
that's almost what it feels like that's, you know, even though Bias for Two was such a huge undertaking, when you look at it, it's something where, I guess I'm trying to think of how you say this, but it, it's, 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 it's sort of like a, a, an experiment in community above all, in the sense where you're like, you're creating this, well, it goes back to what you're talking about, the idea of a biome. And so if you think about yourself, it's like a, a microbiome and the things around you as part of your biome, you're essentially, everything is all about scale. And if you're, if you're starting at the scale in which you can sort of have some sort of control over things, it allows you to, to upscale that. Yeah. Like with the biosphere, because that's was the idea with the biosphere too, was that this is a potential thing where uh, it's an experiment, like you said, but it's a thing where you're, you're learning to see if this, can we do this again? Can we like, can we do this on a grander scale? Okay. It's all. <laughs> well, let, let's go back. Cause you know, we skirted that biosphere too, you know, mucho misunderstood at, at the time and, and perhaps even now. Mm-hmm. It had a space application aspect, and the premise there was if we're actually going to live off our planet, right, in orbiting colonies or on the surface of the moon or Mars or whatever, you know, we will need for ecological stability, for psychological nurturement, for emotional satisfaction, not to live in a little hydroponic system where you're growing wheat and potatoes and, you know, yeah. you know, we have evolved in biospheres and ultimately, and, you know, we're realistic. Biosphere 2 was really a very early, early, early attempt at finding out, you know, we, there's a world of things we don't understand about how our biosphere operates. Mm-hmm. So to miniaturize it, that made it a really interesting test. But yeah, if we're going to live in, you know, off planet, we're going to need to take biospheric life with us. We're going to, you know, learn to make mini biospheres using space resources, et cetera. Now I'm not saying this is going to happen, you know, even within the next hundred years, but this is the direction. And I, 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 uh, I'm a big space enthusiast. You know, I, I like the idea that earth is human's cradle and, you know, but we're, Ultimately, because humans are just, we're just so kick-ass. We're just so, you can't keep us confined. We're very we're, effective. We're always inventing stuff and yeah. destroying the universe as Freeman died. <laughs> and, and it's also the nature of all life. You know, it, if there's a niche, you know, life will find and exploit it. So, yeah, I mean, eventually we're going to be a solar system civilization. And eventually we will go further into the galaxy and probably meet other intelligent life forms and biospheric systems. And it, it's a really grand adventure. You know, so, so Biosphere 2 was a really modest uh, step along that way. And, but, you know, concurrently, it was also uh, an attempt to make a new kind of laboratory, a biospheric laboratory. Right. So we could study in great detail you know, little analogs of our, of our biospheric system where we could experiment and change variables and, and, and learn how biospheres operate. So, you know, yeah. the dream, you know, you, you want to hear another wild one? I'd love to. <laughs> Biosphere 2 is not only named Biosphere 2 so that we could get this setup question 
where was Biosphere One? Did you build that in Santa Fe and it failed? <laughs> Biosphere One, Biosphere One, here's Biosphere. Right. Oh, it happens to be the only Biosphere that we currently know in the universe, and it's your life support system. But the idea of Biosphere Two was to to begin an endeavor, and you know, we held conferences and and met with a lot of uh, planetary geologists, and they're studying comparative planetology. How does Earth differ in its evolution from Mercury and Venus and Saturn? And now we're discovering exoplanets. Mm -hmm. So comparative planetology. So we wanted Biosphere 2 to be the first of a series of uh, experimental facilities you know, where we'd study comparative biospherics. So there should yeah. be a Biosphere 3, 5, 10, 100, 200, and... When people say, oh, but it's so expensive, you know, I first say the <laughs> cyclotrons cost 10 to $20 billion. And Biosphere 2 is the cost of one, you know, modern jet military plane. It's, uh, when you look at it that way, it's absurd not to have more. I know. Mm -hmm. You know, given, you know, given the, the premise that <laughs> the major... The major issue that humanity faces right now in, you know, the first uh, fifth of the 21st century is how do we live well on planet Earth yeah. without destroying ourselves, destroying our, our biosphere? That's right. the issue. That, that's why I say if we built Biosphere 2 yesterday or tomorrow, you know, people would totally understand because so, that was a kind of faraway concept 20, 25 years ago. Why do you think there isn't a new biosphere? Well, you know, Biosphere 2 was really pretty lambasted in the mainstream media. You know, so if you put in Biosphere 2 failure, you'll get all kinds of learned articles on why it was, you know, why it didn't work. Right. Whereas the reality was if it's an experiment and things go wrong, you learn more from that. You know, what was actually kind of boring was how well Biosphere 2 operated. Yeah, it's, yeah, a, it was, it's a total success if you think about it, how complicated. It's a massive success. Well, you know, it, it took a long time for the Earth's biosphere to figure out to make a breathable atmosphere. <laughs> Pretty so, long you know, time, going, yeah. You know, going back to the oxygen uh, decline, it was, you know, very simply a imbalance between the amount of respiration the amount of oxidation, particularly of soil microbes, the mm -hmm. biggest, the biggest collective animal in Biosphere Two, and the amount of plants, and we started inherently with a very small, I call it a bonsai biosphere, and during our two years, you know, biomass more than doubled. Trees oh. grew from like eight feet to twenty-five and thirty feet. Yeah, pounding, and they they discovered within five years that soil had matured and stabilized. So had Biosphere 2, you know, continued its course, you know, we wouldn't have had the imbalances, which, you know, in retrospect seem kind of obvious. Yeah. But, you know, you learn, you learn by making a system instead of building computer models and, you know, putting in hypothetical values. So how do we get a Biosphere 3 off the ground then? Oh, you know, you know onto that, by the way. So Biosphere 2 inspired the Japanese to build their uh, Biosphere J junior okay. bias up in northern uh, Japan. Wow. Uh, and, you know, they're using it. You know, once you build these, these systems, you can do all kinds of very cool research in it. So it's near a uh, nuclear power plant. 
and they're using their you know their junior version of a biosphere it's not as diverse as biosphere 2 to release radioactive elements and see in real you know systems how they uh operate wow there's the uh the eden project in cornwall in the uk okay you know i don't know about that no Oh, it's pretty magnificent. Again, you know, Google the, the images because uh, Tim Smith, Sir Tim Smith, you know, people get uh, get that title in the UK when they do extraordinary things. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the inventor of the Eden Project is, you know, is, is a really dear friend. And he, and he said, of course, I was inspired by Biosphere 2. So the Eden Project is these magnificent, I mean, really, really huge greenhouses with the diversity of the biomes of planet Earth. And the theme is to demonstrate the symbiosis, the cooperation mm-hmm. between humans and plants. That's so cool. Eden, yeah, Eden was another offspring. But hey, the fat lady hasn't sung. Yeah. And let me just throw in this, you know, for, for your interest uh, in the history of this. So as I was mentioning, we were really great buddies with the Soviet, the Russian scientists who were the leaders in the field. And they wanted to do Biosphere 3 in Russia. Right. But unlike Biosphere 2, where we tried to make it as clean and unpolluted and healthy environment as possible, they said, no, our biosphere is going to be really polluted. The soil is going to be contaminated. The air is going to be terrible. The water is going to be polluted. And why? Because our country is really polluted. So we will build a biosphere, and because it's in Russia, it's not going to be a semi-tropical one yeah. like the one we built in Arizona. It may have a tundra and boreal forest and, you know, the, the kind of ecologies that make sense and that are important uh, for that part of the world. And we'll use that biosphere as an experimental laboratory to figure out how to clean up, you know, how to now yeah. bioremediate. How do we, you know, natural, using natural ecological processes, clean up the soil, clean up the water, clean up the air. That's really cool. That's super interesting. And unfortunately, uh, the Soviet Union imploded, and then the ruble wasn't worth anything, and they never got a chance to do that. Well, maybe I'll be back at it at some point in the future here. Who who knows? They've got the space for it, so they definitely do. So well, tell us about the book again before we close, because we have to kind of adjourn here soon. I know. I mean, my God, you, you're keeping your podcasters up for an hour and a half. They can the handle book, it. And it's really a beautiful edition. It's called Life Under Glass. It's the second edition. Uh, myself, Abigail Alling, and Sally Silverstone are the authors. Amazing selection of, of photographs. It's got more of this discussion of why Biosphere 2 is an important lesson and its legacy is highly relevant to the problems we face. And also because we kept the historic text that we wrote before mm-hmm. we actually left Biosphere 2 in 1993, it'll give you a real insight into what was it like to be the first people in living in a biosphere? What were the dramas? What was daily life like? What was on our minds? Super cool. Very exciting the stuff to check out. I can't wait to dig into it and watch the documentary as well. You know, give us an address and we'll send you a physical book. I'll do it for sure. I'd love to. I'll I'll email it to you. Okay, great. Thanks. Great talking with you, Mark. I appreciate it so much. It's really been fun. Likewise. Okay, I'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much. 
Okay, as we say here, adios, amigo. Adios, amigo. Take me where the flowers grow.